This weekend is the time that our country uh, really celebrates the life and the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King. And I thought, you know, with all the racial tension and everything that's going on in our nation, in our world, I, I thought, you know, this would be a good time to let the scripture speak to us and potentially remind some of us as Christ followers, what is our relationship to all the racial issues and tension taking place? Now, let me send out a quick disclaimer. Uh, I am making no political statements or espousing any political views in this. I don't know enough about it. I read everything, and I have a tendency to think a lot of the stuff that we read is always going to have a little bit of a bias. So if you hear any kind of bias today, other than loving people like Jesus did, uh, you know, if you want to talk to me about it, I'd be glad to. But I'm not here uh, to promote some kind of a political agenda or to promote this or that or whatever else. I want to speak to you about racial issues and the cross of all colors. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm going to follow my notes pretty closely today. Uh, the reason is, is in, and I said this last service, and I said, you know, if I don't in something like this, it's really easy to say something that's misconstrued or off the cuff that maybe I think is something funny or maybe you know, I just get in trouble in a talk like this, and I did it. My son comes up to me after service and said, Dad, that was a great talk but I wouldn't say this next time. And he goes, and that wasn't in your notes, was it? He goes, I go, no, it wasn't. And so uh, just, I'm really, this is, such a, this is such an important subject that I don't want anything to cloud it or think that there's an agenda other than that we love people like Jesus does. It was in 1963, most of us are aware of, that Martin Luther King in the March on Washington gave his I Have a Dream speech. It wasn't too long after that that he was invited to the Western Michigan University <clears throat> uh, to speak to them. And afterwards, uh, he did a bit of a quick Q and a, a Q and a question and answer after the lecture. And uh, the questions came about civil rights and... and uh, and, and how to live out the tenets of our faith as Christians in the midst of all this unrest. And he said this. He said, the church is still the most segregated institution in America. At 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, when we stand and sing, Christ has no east or west, we stand at the crossroads of the most segregated hour in this nation, and that is tragic. And I believe that is true. Now, Hear me, because this is where it can, whatever I say here could be misconstrued. I understand culture, okay? Um, I am very pale. And I preach, everyone, I, I don't even preach hardly. People say, oh, you're, you're a teacher, you're not a preacher. So I'm not good at that. I, I can probably do it once in a while. But So I understand that there's going to be, there's different cultural things that may attract or not attract. I don't know. So I'm not necessarily apologizing for our church because we, we, we kind of have a general um, makeup of our community in terms of percentages generally. And that's not my goal is to do that. This is my goal is to make sure that anybody walks through those doors. I don't care what color they are. I don't care what if they're green. That they feel, that they feel the presence of Christ and the love of Christ here. Okay, that, that's, that's the most important thing. And I'm going to say some things, and, and a lot of it's going to sound like I'm talking about black and white. And I am because it's just the, it's the, it's the, it's the issues of the day. I'm going to use a lot of references to that. But please, don't think that I am talking exclusively about black and white. I, I want this to be very inclusive. The cross of all colors, red and yellow, black, black brown, white, are all precious in his sight. And this is about every, because a lot of people, you know, they, they, we can have prejudices against a lot of different things. And so here, that this, is, this isn't about two races, it's about every race, every ethnicity. Let me just quickly read to you from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. And I'm also going to say, I'm working hard because as we get ready to uh, make our schedule changes, I've, if you know, maybe you haven't noticed... Uh, which isn't a good sign, but if you have noticed, I've tried to cut my talks back. And today, because um, i got to get used to an hour and a half instead of an hour and 45-minute break, uh, today I'm going to go a little longer just because I, I don't want to rush through this and I don't want to be anything misrepresented or misunderstood. So if you just give me that freedom, I would, I would uh, appreciate if you'd honor that. 
Jesus is just, uh, he's about ready to be betrayed and he's, um, he's headed into Jerusalem. Chapter 11 of Mark, verse 15 says this, they came to Jerusalem and he went into the temple complex and he began to throw out those buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the money changers, tables and the chairs uh, of those who were selling doves and who, who would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple temple complex. What was taking place there is, you remember, when people would go to the temple, uh, they would have to bring sacrifices to go to temple. They would bring sometimes their own. If they couldn't, if they were traveling too far and couldn't bring the sacrifices, there would be somebody at the temple that would sell it to them. Unfortunately, they began to have these money changers. That were, they had these, they had these the, the sacrifice sellers, and they would sell these uh, animals to the people to be able to sacrifice them in temple. And they would overcharge them. Or if they didn't bring the right kind of currency, they would charge them for the way they dealt with the currency. You know, if they, uh, they, they would charge them if they had a different currency. So it really became a money-making racket, and it began to extract from the people's ability and desire to worship the living God, because basically they were getting ripped off. And so Jesus is telling him, and he goes in here, and we understand in the gospel that I mean, he just goes in here, he just whacks all these people and turns the tables over and says, get out. And then he says, listen, this is what my house is going to be about. It's not going to be about making money. And he began to teach them, verse 17 says, is it not written that my house will be called a house of prayer? And that's where most of us go, amen. That's where we stop. If I ask you, if I quoted this thing to you, a lot of you would say, oh, yeah, yeah. Jesus was going to say, let's make this place a house of prayer. But don't forget the last three words. Listen. For all nations. It's going to be a house of prayer for all nations. You know what he's really saying? He's being incredibly, totally, undeniably inclusive of every person. And that's what I want to talk about today. That the church, universal, corporate America, corporately in America, Creekside Church is to be a church for all the nations. Do, do you remember the first ethnic jokes that were really popular that everybody told? Do you remember what they were? Uh, Polish jokes. When I grew up, it was Polish jokes. That's what, you know, those were the big things that everybody... Uh, talked about, and I remember hearing them, and, and even I went, when I was in junior high, there was this beautiful girl, she came to school, she started uh, late in seventh grade, her name is Lori Ruskowski, and she made it very clear that she was not Polish, but she was Lithuanian, because everybody started teasing her about being Polish, even though she was beautiful, um, they, you know, they wanted it probably as a way to date her, but they would go steady with her, but she said, you know what, I am Lithuanian, I am not Polish. Well, after, you know, the the, the Polish jokes kind of ran their course, didn't they? And after a while, people probably said, ah, those really aren't that funny anymore, and let's not do those anymore. So then we had the dumb blonde jokes. Remember those? What do you call a brunette standing between two blondes? An interpreter. Um, (laughs) Okay, well, like I said, I'll say something stupid. Just give me a, I'll do something else. Okay, so I know you blondes, you hated that. You hated it then, you hate it now. So what did they do? They said, well, let's come up with some dumb guy jokes. So they come up with them. And one of them was this, why are all dumb blonde jokes one-liners? So guys can understand them. (laughs) What's the difference between a man and E.T.? E.T. phoned home. See, see, those, those aren't that bad. Many love a good joke, I usually do too. But, but, we've, but we understand, we realize there's a difference between jokes about hair and gender and race and ethnicities. When people are called words that have become derogatory toward their heritage or their ancestry, they're emotionally charged terms where they're used as weapons of disdain and hatred, where they're intended really to devalue, to demean, and to dehumanize people. And I suppose that a lot of us, when we trespass those boundaries, we don't understand how that can damage another person's soul because we've never been oppressed, most of us, some of us, but most of us here living on the West Coast generally, living in suburban America, we, don't, we haven't faced through the heritage and lineage of our families the oppression that so many ethnicities and races have faced. 
And what that begins to do when they hear that, when they know that that's taking place or they hear people do it without even a sense of common, uh, common concern, uh, it really causes soul damage. You, you know the adage. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. What a lie. The words and the way they're framed hurt people more probably than anything ever could. Black author Miriam Edelman writes this about soul damage. She said that's a kind of internal pain and hurt that goes on and on and on. She goes on to say, you know, it utterly is exhausting to be black in America and there's no respite or escape from your badge of color. And, and, and I would just add, parenthetically, not her words, mine, but a lot, of, a lot of ethnicities might be able to insert their race in there as well. See, it's so easy to pass off as political correctness gone over the edge and say it's not a big deal, it's just, you know, it's hyper-political correctness. But see, we've never had soul damage like that. We've never been oppressed. We've never, you know, had people really talk down on us. And when they tell a joke about us that there's, you know, an element of truth in it that we just can't escape. That's probably been going on for decades there's a story of an African-American man. He was standing at the bottom of the steps that were leading up to this big church. He was looking at the doors at the church and he was scratching his head, had kind of a, a puzzled, befuddled look on his face. And as he stood there, Jesus comes by. Now, he doesn't recognize Jesus. But he sees this man who is confused and looking up and he says, what's troubling you, friend? Well, the man, not realizing he's talking to Jesus, he answered and he said, they told me that I can't go into their church because I'm I'm black. Jesus responds, oh, don't be surprised by that. I've been trying to get into that church for years. They won't let me in either. (laughs) I think the point of that story is really obvious. A church or people that shut out others for racial reasons or whatever, and divisions ultimately come like that, they will shut out Jesus. Racial, or racism has an awful undertow on the church's message, doesn't it? It has dimmed more lights for people who have searched out the truth and to find Jesus. But because a church becomes racially divided, it has incredible effect and impact on those people, doesn't it? Racism has been responsible for social unrest and for revolutions because those oppressed will not accept it and live under oppression forever. And that is a truth that we know. Gandhi, while he was living in South Africa, he tried to attend a worship, church, a worship service in an Anglican church cathedral. It was during a time when Gandhi was young and, and was starting his nonviolent movement of, of dealing with the oppression of South Africa. And he was, he was giving serious consideration to the role that Jesus Christ would play in his life. Shortly After taking his seat in the sanctuary, an usher comes up to him, bends over to Gandhi and whispered in his ear, and he said that colored people were not allowed to worship in that particular church. Not only did this keep the great Indian leader from pursuing a potential relationship with Christ, it had far-reaching social ramifications as well. Years later, when when, uh, Gandhi was reflecting on this event, he noted That poor usher, he thought he was ushering a colored man out of a church when in reality, he was ushering India out of the British Empire. I trust, and I'm pretty sure, I trust I don't have to address this talk today from a position of declaring racism wrong and totally out of line with Christ's teaching. I do it because I believe it's a strategic moment in the history of our country. And I also think that when we are continually bombarded with these images on TV, we read about it, that can be so biased one way or the other, that it can subtly creep into our hearts and it can, and it can begin to creep into the deep crevices of our soul where we begin to become just a little jaded and maybe we begin to take on just a tid, t- tad of racism that can begin to cloud our ability to see people as Jesus sees them. And I never, I never want to be a pastor slash person and I never want to be a church that allows that kind of stuff and sludge to creep into the crevices of my soul 
where it would begin to taint my ability to see people like Jesus does. And this is what I know. It may not be that people are prejudiced. They're racist. But it is possible that we, become, we can become insensitive. And in our politically correct society, that can be seen as racism. The Church of Christ... We, you, me, under the blood-bought banner of Jesus Christ, we are his hands extended to bring healing to every person. If you look at the life of Jesus, if you study his word in the gospel, this wasn't something that he simply attempted to teach. He didn't because he lived it out. When he said that, the, that, the, that his house would be a place of prayer for all the nations, he lived it out. It wasn't just a trite little verse that we can look up. But Jesus lived it. It was as natural to him as breathing, as we'll see in a minute. The Apostle Paul highlighted this truth throughout his New Testament writings. In Galatians 2, 6, and Galatians 3, he says this, God does not show favoritism. There is neither Jew, there's no Greek, there's no slave, there's no free, there's not male, there's not female. You are one in Christ Jesus. That's part of the reason we even do tables, I guess. Because we want us to see we are interconnected. We are one. We want people to be a part of God's family. And yes, this family. The church must be, loved ones, the one place in the world where all of the superficial delineations are checked in at the door and where we live this out in the marketplace of our lives because it starts here when we're challenged by the life of Jesus. And we say there is no other option. Hear me. Based on what Paul says, based on how Jesus lived and declared to people, based on everything that is declared in the New Testament, it doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor, educated, uneducated, successful, or seemingly unsuccessful, athletic, clumsy, if you're black or you're white, man or woman, Chinese or Mexican or Hispanic, it doesn't matter. Before Jesus Christ and the cross, your ethnicity does not matter. In the church, it should not, will not, cannot matter because we're all called to be family. And listen, I, you, we, Creekside Church needs to drive a stake of that truth into our hearts again and again. I went to, uh, I went to see the movie Selma. I don't recommend many movies. I don't see a lot, but I um, don't go to see a lot. But I, just a powerful movie as we were leaving I, I couldn't talk for a couple minutes. I just, I honestly was so moved. And I said to Trina, it's amazing how far we've come. And yet it's amazing how far we still have to go. Because so much of that is still being played out on the front page and the news today. So what is racism? It's a broader, a general working definition would be it's a negative passion towards a group of people or an attitude of attributing negative to a whole group based on a few. Some will parse this word prejudice into its two parts, prejudging. It's coming to these general conclusions without sufficient information about everybody. It's imputing to a whole group of people the negative characteristics of just a few. Face it, it is easy to do, isn't it? I thought about this, and so I asked a few people. I said, well, tell me, um, give me ideas for this. What do, I, what do I mean by that? Here are some of them. They drive like. None of them can swim. They're all rude to Americans. They are warmongers. They can jump through the rafters. They can't jump at all. But see, these are stereotypes, and, and ultimately what can happen is these can become self-fulfilling prophecies to a group of people that live under them for years or for decades because they've been sold this bill of goods that this can become their ticket out of the ghetto or the backwoods or wherever they are, and they can begin to be stereotyped to believe this kind of thinking, and that begins to be how, how groups of people live their lives. If you spend any time Love runs around a group of people that are different than you. You will find most of them to be just like us, just like you. 
They want the same things that you want for your family and your life. They want to live in peace. They want freedom. They want to love their kids. They want to see them grow up to be responsible people, to have all of the opportunities that this great land provides. They want to love. They want to serve. They want to know God. They want to get along with people. Those are unilateral truths across the board that literally obliterate some of the racism thoughts that we deal with today. But if we're not careful, it is easy to allow a few people from one group to taint your perspective. You'll begin to assign negative passion to the whole and pretty soon, guess what? It becomes your attitude that you begin to live out and it begins to, breathe, uh, to, to just bleed out of your soul. So where does it come from? <clears throat> Let me give you just a few quick areas here. Research tells us, and the sad thing is it often begins with our origin of family. Parents, hear me. You play the single largest role in forming or creating an attitude or mindset of biased attitudes in the lives of your children concerning racism. Parents often determine whether their kids grow up to be bigots or bridge builders to the people they face day in and day out. Uh, Christmas time this year, after every, all our family had left, I told Trina, I said, you know, uh, we have this really uh, wonderful little grandson you hear a lot about, and he's kind of, I wouldn't say spoiled, but he's well taken care of. And at Christmas, he has all these things because he's the only grandchild on both sides of the family, so you, you can imagine what that's like. And I said after he'd, well, you know, everything, and, um, and I noticed that he played more with the boxes than he did the actual toys. I said to Trina after everybody left, I said, next year, this is what we're going to do with eyes. We're, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna take some of his toys, good toys, that he doesn't use a lot of, and we're going to ask him to wrap them up and we're going to go take them to some underprivileged kids. And then we're going to take them and, uh, to a place where we do you know, feed some underprivileged people. Because I want him to grow up with a much broader perspective on life than I ever grew up with. And I never want him to be tainted as a, as a, as a, as a lily-white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed boy thinking that's the norm. And, 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 and that's just a responsibility, loved ones, that we've got to do with our children, I believe. See, research shows that prejudice mindsets, they get formed early on. They don't just happen because we enter this world from our mama's womb. Careless parents can turn innocent children who are open, fun-loving kids into mean-spirited, excuse me, bigots at an early age. I'm going to show you a little video. It's just a very simple thing. That as I was thinking about this message, I put this together this week to show the progression of how you see these little children, yellow, red, white, black, and brown, yellow, and red-skinned children. They're all playing together. They're laughing. They're racing. And then all of a sudden, there's a switch. It's flipped. And then all of a sudden, this thing, racism, creeps in. I was looking for pictures and I saw these pictures of the Ku Klux Klan and, and you know, I saw the ones with the white hooded robes and that's, that's just awful enough. But what really, what really grabbed my attention, they were showing these present day Klan families. And if you didn't know I was looking at Klan, you'd say, this is, well, this is Martinez USA. This is a family that's right next door to us. You got little kids got mamas and daddies and grandpa and grandmas. They're sitting around, they're barbecuing together, and they're just laughing and having fun. I mean, they're just family pictures. And then you scroll down, you begin to progress, and then all of a sudden you see these families put on their hoods. You see them put on their garb. Where do you think the kids learn that? They aren't born, they're born into it, but that's not in their DNA. So how do we as parents do that? How do we as adults do that? It can start with some simple comments because this speaks to your heart. Out of, the, out of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? So Jesus said, you ever find yourself saying something like this? Why don't they just go home where they came from? Hey, they're in America. They need to learn to speak the language or get out. 
our little grandson, when I say things, it's amazing. Two, three days later, you know what he'll do? He'll speak it. His little heart, his little soul has got Velcro on it. And those words that I speak, they just stick to them. And it's the same for your kids too, your grandkids. And see, we can be so innocent but not see the vestiges of some of that racism that can begin to seep and to bleed out. When I was growing up, my dad and I, I lived with my dad most of my life growing up. I mean, all my life, but I mean, it was just him and I for a, a significant portion. And we didn't have a lot of conversations, so I didn't really know a lot of his thinking. But when I was in the eighth grade, 1971, I got a bit of taste of it. Uh, when I called, I, I was in seventh and eighth grade, and there was this little seventh grader. Her name was uh, Donna Lee. And I asked her to go steady with me. And uh, big surprise, she said yes. And so we exchanged rings, and I think we were together for five days. <laughs> um, yeah, she dumped me. But it was, it was still a nice little romance while it lasted. But uh, the, the kicker is this. I went home. I told my daddy, because, you know, I was proud. A girl finally said, I'll go steady with you. And I went home. And you know what my dad's first question was? Is she Chinese? Now, you have to understand, uh, uh, 12, 13, 7th grade, 8th grader doesn't understand. I didn't, I didn't have any context for that. I didn't understand that, generally speaking, Lee is a Chinese name. So when he asked me that, I said, well, no, she's, no, she's not. And it was dropped. But for whatever reason, that, that, that statement just kind of hung over me for a number of years. Fast forward almost 20 years to 1991, I was living in Manteca. And uh, now I'm in my 30s, early 30s. And you've got to understand my dad, I, I don't say this to put him down, he's, he's passed away, but we were never close. But my dad got into all of these radical things. He became like one of these, I think, American militia people where everything was right-wing radical. He got involved in politics and everything became a conspiracy that the world, I mean, the that American government is against us. And if you believe that, that's fine. I, you know, it doesn't bother me. I'd love to give you my take on it. Everyone says, you, you know what, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. You know that, don't you? It is. It's going to happen. What we do, why we're here, is so that we can stem the tide of that, but ultimately that's what's going to happen. I don't take a case or a stance on it, but I know, ultimately, read the Bible, Revelation, it's going to die, it's everything going to blow up, it's dead. But until then, we're called to live here to be the salt of the earth. But see, my dad got really radical on this stuff, quit paying his taxes, I mean, just it was crazy. So he comes down and he sees me. This is a year before he dies. And I learned over the years, I could never talk to my dad about anything because it always came back to the cesspool of America and politicians and blah, blah, blah. So I started engaging him uh, when he came to our house to stay because I just had to make some kind of connection with him. And we're talking, and all of a sudden, you know, it always goes to this political thing. And then it starts going to this racial conversation. And he's saying things like, you know the reason that America is going this way, don't you? It's because of all the nationalities that are here. And then he began to talk a little more pointedly about Asians. And and he said, you know, I I would never want anybody in my family. He said in some other terms. And for the most part, my dad was a really nice guy. But it's amazing how this racism just began to seep out. And I never understood it because we didn't talk that much. But all of a sudden, I connected the dots to eighth grade to 20 years later. And I was trying to figure this out. I realized he served in the Korean War. I don't know if if, if something happened there that affected him. But I realized, man, I just said, I walked away from that day. I thank God that, first of all, I didn't, I wasn't polluted by that kind of toxic thinking. Because one thing I'll say about my dad, he didn't drill it into me or he didn't try and force it upon me. But, but these statements were made that I begin to understand it. See, as a parent, loved ones, you're going to make a determination whether your children become bigots or bridge builders. Our call is to teach our children to appreciate the rich diversity that God has built into the human race. And that every person, every person in this room, every person this week that you face is made in the image of God. It doesn't matter how sweet or nice or bad or sad or what, it doesn't matter what it is. 
there is still the imprint of the image of Jesus Christ on them that we cannot forget. There's economical issues, there's economic issues. Feelings can begin to bubble to the surface today and be ignited when a member of another group gets positioned to affect your employment, your housing, career mobility. And isn't it true that these feelings can begin to bubble to the surface and get unleashed? Between 1882 and 1930, there was some research that uh, took place, and they found that there was a direct correlation between the price of cotton and the number of, of black lynchings in rural South. If the price of cotton was going up, there wouldn't be as many black lynchings because they needed them to work, to make money. When the price of cotton plummeted and economic pressures increased, so did the number of black lynchings. You can begin to see it today, loved ones. With job quotas and affirmative action legislation and immigration issues, racial tensions get much higher and higher, and they're driven in part by economic pressures. And we see this due to the inundation of immigrants and just, again, all of these things taking place. This is the key that every one of us have got to do, do work with before Jesus. Am I going to allow that affect how I see people? Or am I going to trust Jesus to go before me and to take care of me? So there's, there's our family of origin, economic issues, but there's also cultural conformity. Sociologists refer to this as the pressures of conformity. We all understand. Another word, we use peer pressure. It basically happens in every culture over time as it begins to develop its own languages and customs and folklore stories. These will eventually lead to a typecasting of certain groups in the society. And that typecasting eventually begins to devalue different groups and classes of people. Well, let's test your thinking of typecasting in our culture. You don't have to say these out loud, but what's the ethnicity that is prominent in our culture with organized crime? Italians. Are all Italians involved in organized crime? No. Are you kidding me? Of course not. It's such a small percentage, and I don't even know how much even today, but back in the day. What's the color of the best athletes in the NBA? White. <laughs> there, you know what? People say white. People say it's all. But our stereotype is, well, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the black. It's all. We have Europeans now. We have, we have Chinese. We have Japanese. We have whites. We have blacks. See, there, it's, it's all of them. But we get typecast, and that's what builds stereotypes. And that's what begins to put a lid on people. Well, I've got to become this. I've got to become a professional athlete to get out of where I am. What's the language of most landscapers? What's the, what, what language do most landscapers speak today? Oh, yeah, that's Spanish. Really? Well, that might be a high percentage, but see, we, we just have this tendency to begin to frame everything with labels and typecasts. It happens in other cultures as well. You go to certain parts of Europe, what are we called? We're called the ugly Americans. And sometimes we are. A lot of times we are. But hear me. These develop in every culture and society. But it's so easy to conform to this kind of thinking, loved ones, if we're not careful. And over time, the aroma begins to have a stench. And the stench comes from our mouth and our activities, our attitudes and our actions. And yeah, there are some things and thinking that goes a bit deeper than family and sociological issues. And here's what it is. You look over the historical landscape to our date in this place in history. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. You can't put a nice finish on it, but this is the bottom line. The greatest perpetrator is none other than human depravity and our sin. 
How else can we explain coming into this world where we have, we have sin coursing through us, but we come in and we see little babies that are black and white and yellow and Chinese, Japanese and African-American and white. They play together. They love together. They can be in a nursery together. They can go to school together. They can become best friends. And then something switches. And sometimes it is just depravity where there's this sin in us that begins to devalue other groups and human beings, where we have to be superior. And to become superior, we've got to put down or oppress other groups. That's our reality. So what do we do? What's our response to be? Well, the first thing is this. And hear me, listen, I know this is a fly-by message because, you know, if, a lot of you will go, oh, boy, that was kind of nice, but I, I can't speak to you. Know, this, is, this is such a long thing. I, I mean, it's over 200 years old in America. But I want to make sure that the 500 or 400 people that I'm going to be talking to this weekend are challenged. Because it's got to start one life at a time, and it starts with seeing Christ's heart. If you study the Gospels and you see him, you see him burst through every racial barrier there was, geographical, ethnic, traditional, family, religious, natural. He's showing us that we are called to take this initiative as he did. Ephesians 2.13, Paul again says concerning Jesus, Christ brought us together through his death on the cross. This cross, this emblem, Every, just like this stage, every one of us loved ones stands on a flat ground. None of us are elevated. None of us are better. None of us are less. Before Jesus, there are no hills. It is flat, solid ground. And Jesus, and I'm going to give you just two examples. And it's on your notes there. In, in Matthew 8, Jesus, this Roman centurion comes to Jesus and said, Would you heal my sick, sick, sick servant unto death? You know what a Roman centurion would have been? You've got to understand the historical context. The Romans were oppressing Israel. They were the ones that came in and said, we're taking over. And that's what the, 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 the whole idea of Israel, God's people, when Jesus came, they said, you're the Messiah, you're going to kick Rome out. But he said, no, 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 it's a spiritual kingdom. Everybody hated the Romans, except Jesus. So this oppressive government this centurion would have been one of the higher up in their military. He would have been well off. And he comes to this lowly little Nazarene who's poor. But there's something of his heart that's changing lives. And he says, Jesus, would you come? Would you heal my servant? What does Jesus do? Sorry, bud. You're that Roman group. I ain't touching that man. What are my people going to think about me touching your people? No, he goes and he heals him. And then he says about this guy, he goes, you know something, this is amazing. I have not seen such faith in Israel from my own people. Jesus would go anywhere, touch anybody. Remember the woman at the well, John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42? She's this gal, man. She's been married five times. Doesn't have a good track record. As a matter of fact, it kind of notes that she's like shacking up with another guy now. <clears throat> Well, that's not, even the, that's not even the big story. Jesus is walking, and he says to his disciples, we are going to go to Samaria, because i got an appointment there. I, there's something going on there that I need to be there for. It's the inference. It doesn't say that totally in the text. And the disciples, what, Samaria? You know why the disciples were so concerned about going to Samaria? A couple of reasons. Number one, they were considered half-breeds, gypsies, tramps, thieves. A Jew would have walked around Samaria, taken extra miles to walk to avoid Samaria. They looked down on it that much. The only way they would ever utter the word Samaria out of their lips is if it was a cuss word. There was hatred. There was dissonance. There was emotional, spiritual, physical dissonance between, those, between them and the Jews. What does Jesus do? Saddles up next to this girl who's getting water because she's an outcast from the rest of the ladies having been married five times and divorced and then living with a guy. Jesus reaches out to her. And they begin to have a spiritual dialogue and, and pretty soon 
She's so enamored and touched by the love of Christ, this Jewish man. She runs into the city and says, come see a man that's told me everything about me. And he had. What happens, that whole town of Samaria, wherever that came out, those people that came out, come to know who the Messiah, the Meshua, Jesus Christ was. See, Jesus didn't back down. He just blew through any walls. Here's what I want to say. eh? We've got to be the ones, loved ones, that are open to develop relationships like Jesus. We want to be the first to walk across the room in this church to welcome an ethnicity, a different race, a different color, a different look. We want to be the first in our office that says, welcome to IBM. I'm Terry. We're glad you're here. How can I help you? We want to be the first one that takes that extra shovel. Hey, welcome to J&J Construction. Here's a shovel. Let's go dig together. I'm glad you're here. As an educator, when that little student comes in and they're a minority in your classroom, you go up to them and you go, welcome, Johnny. So glad you're here. Let let me introduce you to some of the other kids. We paved the way. What I love about our church is you most of, if you've been here for a while, you know that we have a wonderful relationship with Second Baptist downtown. I love their pastor and their former pastor, Keith, and we did some things on MLK together, on MLK weekend together. And we would have services, and then he ended up taking a church down in Los Angeles. And it, while we still had good connections with the church, uh, we just weren't able to get as many things together. And now I've met with the new pastor, and he called me and wanted to talk. And so we're going to begin to rebuild, uh, not rebuild, just re-engage in that relationship. And can I just tell you, I just believe that's so important for us, loved ones, that we never forget that we as the church have got to show the world there's no walls. We see each other the same. That's Christ's heart. The second thing is you've got to have a changed heart. It's so easy to allow the shards of racism to cut deeply into our soul and ultimately bleed out into our life. And it's not totally unknown to God's people. You can go through the scriptures and you'll see it in the New Testament. Remember Jonah? God says, I want you to go to Nineveh. And he goes, no way. Those are the meanest, most obnoxious people in the world. And so God says, oh, no, you're going to go. And, and I think the reason that God made him go, uh, because he wanted to touch that people who ended up repenting and following Christ, but I think he wanted to do a deeper heart work in Jonah. Unfortunately, it never came about. And I think Jesus will always challenge us, loved ones, where we have our greatest struggles. But it's not totally unknown to God's people and in the scriptures. And I was thinking about this. How do we get our hearts changed? I scrolled through a lot of the options. Is it possible that we could change this? I mean, if we elect some really good politicians, some great government officials and servants, and they come up with some really powerful, strong legislation that can change, can they change the composition of one's heart? You'll see in Selma that they were, that uh, President Johnson finally passed some legislation that really made it, that every um, African American or minority in the South could vote. That helped. And legislation can help. I'm all for politicians. Listen, I believe they play an important place in society to be able to, to craft and recraft strong legislation. But this is the bottom line. They cannot, they cannot change the composition of a human heart or life. They can force people to do it. But they can't do it. They can't change a heart. How about this? Maybe, maybe if we throw some more resources, that'll help. Just give money to it. Could, and it's probably needed. But it's important to know that a good economy will never change the composition of a life heart or its destiny. It might change it for a season, but you just study the lotto winners that have won millions of dollars. If they've been poor, the chances are they'll be poor within four to five years again. It's the heart. How about knowledge? If we just teach them better, education is the key. And I believe education is so important because it gives us more options. It gives us confidence. It can assist us in finding answers, but it will not change 
the heart. Hear me. There's only one power that can change the trajectory of a society gone bad because it changes the hearts of people. And it happens one life at a time. And it's because of this powerful message of the love of God and the cross of Jesus Christ, the one who knew prejudice and experienced throughout his whole life but never expressed it to one other person. And he took that on for us. And hear me, that's the message, loved ones, that has been given to the church. Oh, yes, this church, you. We are reconcilers for Jesus Christ. The entity, this entity of the church, blood bought by Jesus is the hope of the world. It's us, loved ones, or lights out. Before you know it, we will not win the day. The tipping point of humanity's racism and sin will continue to flood over us, and we will not make a difference if we aren't thinking about it all the time, every day, in every way, everywhere we go, where, there isn't, where, where it's at least on the forefront of what can I do to help this to make it better, to be willing to walk across the room, to be a change agent. Hear me, never underestimate who you are and where you are. You are part of the local church. Sacramento isn't going to change the world. Washington, D.C. is. But if you get a band of churches together that get beyond their four walls and they begin to see the reality of what Jesus brings to the world, you are at the vortex You were at the place of greatest power to change the hearts of humanity. One life at a time. This puts you in the humanity of major leagues. We are not minor league players, loved ones, because we have the message that is lethal to the sin and the racism of this world because it was crucified by Christ Jesus. I said I wasn't going to preach this because it might be taken wrong, but... This is critical. Like I say, we're not talking black and white here. We're talking red, yellow, black, brown, white. Every race. Every ethnicity. We've got to see people differently than we did before. We've got to see them as someone in the image of God who Christ died for, that they are our potential brother and sister in the Lord. 1 John 4 says this, we, though are going to love, we're going to love and be loved. First we are loved, now we love. What he's saying is you, you, you can love because Jesus loved you. Remember when you were kind of a stinky person? A little rascal? Yeah, he still loved you. If anyone boasts I love God and does not and goes right on hating his brother or sister, thinking nothing of it. He's a liar. If he won't love the person he can see, how can he really say, I love the God I can't see? The command we have from Christ is blunt. Loving God includes loving people. You've got to love both. Loved ones, you've never locked eyes or rubbed shoulders with another human being who doesn't matter to God. You know how you really know Christ is in you, taking up residence? Is you love people. That's what the Bible says. Best way for me to steer clear of this soul toxic life of racism is that I, I, I study the red. I read the red. I read about Jesus and I see how he loved people. I see how he cared for people. I see how he accepted people. That's why we talk about that a lot here, that at least three to five days a week, you get up in the morning, take 10 minutes or more, whatever you've got, just to read the Bible, the Gospels, read Jesus. It's not ink on paper, it says it's a living word. It's amazing how I can read about some of my attitudes here and I can just be totally, oh God, forgive me. Because it creeps in, loved ones, so subtly. Let me close with this last one. 
remember what is coming. You've got to remember what's coming. Remember Jesus says before he checks out of this earth, he says, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. John the revelator, the guy who's on the island of Patmos, and, and he gets this revelation of what's coming in the book of Revelation. Uh, I said this a few weeks ago, but there's a, there's a few places in the Bible that says, when you have your hope in heaven, and that doesn't mean you forget about earth, but you, you, you know there's a new thing coming and there's something better coming. That has a purifying effect. It kind of slaps the slack out of your spiritual sails because you know I'm going to stand before Jesus one day, not in fear, but oh God, I get to see you. I get to live in eternity with you. John writes this in Revelation 7, 9. I looked again. I saw a huge crowd, too huge to count. Everyone was there. All nations, tribes, races, and languages. And they were standing dressed in white robes, waving palm branches, standing before the throne. Get this, loved ones. Someday you're going to stand before Jesus in worship. And there's going to be black, red, yellow, white, brown. And then each one of those colors is going to have so many different people in them, so many ethnicities. But you know what? You're not even going to notice it. You know why? Because you're going to notice the radiance of Jesus Christ. And if he is the focus of your life here and now, is it possible that we can look past the 25 or 30 pounds of skin and see the preciousness of every person around us? Because inside, we all beat the same heart, pump the same blood, want the same things. It's time to take some risks that we would be the people who are continually working to reach across racial and ethnic lines. We become a key wherever we can to ending the strife Somebody has said the key is, is it takes one person in each place to begin to reach out so the walls begin to crumble. And then we desire, we determine to build sincere, God-honoring, cross-racial relationships at work, work, neighborhood, school. It starts with our heart. One life at a time. <laughs> 